You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. We've been, uh, we've been looking at the giants in our life that defy the purposes of God being outworked in our lives. And last week we, we looked at the giant of sin. And it was quite a hard-hitting message. On the way home, Margot said, you're pretty hard today. And uh, others came up and said, you weren't hard enough. So I can't win whichever way I go. But uh, we looked at the giant of sin. And sin, of course, is any conduct or any mindset or any thinking process that we engage in that is contrary to the word of God. And undealt with, it can become a giant in our life. It can become one of those road blockages to us reaching in and embracing the blessing, the victory, the prosperity, the the abundant life that Jesus says is ours. If we have undealt with sin in our life, it will block us. And, And you can go to a thousand prayer lines and you can complain to God all night. It won't change until you deal with that giant called sin. If you hear the words of Jesus and you don't do them, then you will be like a man who builds his house on sand. When the storm comes, he is Lord in the storm. But if we're not obedient to him in the storm, our our house will fall and great will be its fall. So we looked at the giant of sin and we, we looked at the giant of a lack of provision. And uh, I shared with you that the reason God allows the giant of a lack of provision to come into our life is because he's trying to push us to a new level of trust. He, He will allow us to go without. He will allow us to face seasons in our life where seemingly we don't have what we need. Where seemingly we are hungry, where seemingly we are without the the necessities that we believe we need to have. And God will withhold things from us because he's trying to get us to a place where we will declare, God, I trust you. And like Job, we'll come to that place of even if you slay me, I will trust you. You see, God is more focused on getting us in relationship with him than he is in pouring blessing into our life. Blessing is the byproduct of walking with him. But you see, maturity says we learn whether we have or we don't have, whether we um, have an abundance of provision or whether we are hungry or whether we are full. Paul said, I've learned to be content. And when you're in that place, it's a place of trust where where God says, I am actually able to provide for you. Will you trust that I will? And when he provides for us, it's not always when we think he should provide for us. But he is God and we have to learn to overcome the giant of a lack of provision that will whisper in our ear, you're going to have to take matters into your own hands. God isn't going to come through. I know he promised and I know you've had a prophetic word and I know you were reading your Bible the other day and and a scripture leapt off the page to say God would come through, but he still hasn't come through and he's not going to come through. And you have this war in your mind over whether God can be trusted or not. It's a giant that's trying to undermine that, that growth in your trust. And we have to come to that place where we learn to trust God. We looked at the giant of fear and intimidation. And the reason God allows the giant of, inferior, of fear and intimidation is because he's trying to get us to a new level of faith, a new level of trust that God said, and if he said, it'll happen. 
and I'm just going to stay the course regardless of the storm, regardless of the conditions, regardless of the wind, regardless of the rain, regardless of the thunder, the storm around me. I will acknowledge he is Lord in the middle of that and I'm just going to keep pushing through. God's going, this is working. This is growing his faith. And eventually you come through. And when you overcome that giant, your potential increases. Because you overcome here, you will overcome here. And if you overcome here, you will overcome here. And so you, you, are, you are growing in your faith levels. And God's going, I want this guy to be a giant killer. I want this lady to be an overcomer because I, I want my kids to overcome and I want them to learn to rule and reign and not just be pandered to and given everything they want when they want. Like spoilt kids, I want them to grow up and be strong with backbone in their life. We looked at the giant of unprocessed failure and how that can you know, undermine and sabotage our life, whether it's somebody having failed us or whether we've had a personal failure and we live with hurt and we live with disappointment and it can hold us back and hinder the outworking of the purposes of God in our life. It's a giant. And we closed off last Sunday looking at the giant of an unbreakable habit, addictions, bondages, whether it's a physical addiction of some sort of substance or a food addiction or whether it's an emotional bondage, a, a mental hang-up, whatever it is. It's, a, it's a, an unbreakable habit. You keep going back to the same trough. You keep going back to the same watering hole and, and it's not satisfying. It, it meets an internal need, but it's temporary and often you end up worse than what you were and you've got to increase whatever it was and it's a, it's a vicious cycle that's destroying people's lives. This morning, I want in the time that I've got to look at how to take down the giants in your life, how to actually stand up against those defying giants that seek to sabotage and smash the purpose of God in your life. And I want to read to you from a very well-known passage of scripture. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Last Sunday, I spoke out of Numbers 13, the story of the spies that were sent in by uh, uh, Joshua to spy out the land and, and uh, no, sorry, Moses and they spy out the land. They came back with a bad report saying there's giants in the land. They're stronger than us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight and in our own sight. But I want to talk to you about specifically taking down a giant. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1, we read the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko in Judah and Azekar at Ephesus Daman. Saul counted by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail. That's not mail that comes through the post, by the way. That's uh, a, a metallic jacket. It weighed 125 pounds. Now, I think that's probably about 65 kilos if my conversions are right. Merv Curran's over there. You're a mathematician. Did I convert that? 125 pounds around about 65 kilos. That's, that's like carrying Margot and a half on your back. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't expose your weight like that, should I? <laughs> so he carried... This coat of mail 
And the shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds, seven and a half kilos, so seven kilos, uh, his spear. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying the bonnet of a Volkswagen as a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion. You are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. There's the giant of fear and intimidation. When they heard the threat, when they heard the voice of this intimidating giant, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, David in verse 12 was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, for six weeks, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. That's a long time. Six weeks this went on for. He strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. Give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along. Bring back a report on how they are doing. David's Brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gift as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Let me pause right there and say this. What I just read then is the epitome of religion. They set out with shouts and and battle cries. Just like we come to church on a Sunday and sing songs of victory, but go out on Monday and live in defeat. We come in with our shouts. We come in with our our ranting and our raving. We come in with our declarations, but it's nothing more than a declaration because we don't then put legs on that declaration and go out and enforce the victory. We come in with our shouts and our songs of war, but we do nothing to deal with the giants that face. That's the epitome of religion. So the Israelite army go out with these shouts, these battle cries, but every time they go out, Goliath steps out and they run back again. So they've got the words, they've got the form of power and godliness, but no substance. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces, verse 21, stood facing each other army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Not a bad offer. Big risk, but not a bad offer. 
David asked the soldier standing by, take note of this. What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this Philistine pagan anyway, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, this is the reward for killing him. But when David's older brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now? David replied. That's, that's the words of a younger brother. <laughs> what have I done now? It's, uh, I was only asking a question. He said he walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go and fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. David persisted. I've been taking care of my dad's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. The animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented, all right, go ahead. And may the Lord be with you. Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them in his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, you come to me with a spear, you come to me with a javelin, you come to me with skill, you come to me with experience. But let me tell you something, my friend, I come to you in the name above every other name, the name of Jesus. Today, he said, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds of the wild animals and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. I remember in the late 70s, listening to a recovered alcoholic share his testimony. His name was Jack Brennan and... He spoke for two hours about his struggle with alcoholism. He shared in the story that when he was 12 years of age, his father was a, a hopeless alcoholic. His father would come home angry and, and beat up his mum, and, and he and his brother would hide in the bedroom and they hated what was happening in the home. They hated what their dad was like. They hated what alcohol did to their dad. And he and his brother would hide every night when his dad would come home in a violent rage. And he would, they would get under the bed and stay as far out of his sight as they possibly could. And when he was 12 years of age, he told the story that he was under the bed one day with his brother. When his brother said, hey, look what I've just found. And it was a bottle of his dad's liquor. 
that had somehow ended up in the room and had rolled under the bed. Perhaps his dad had passed out there one night, never finished the bottle, and it rolled under the bed, and, and it, it was out of sight, out of mind. And his brother found it. He said, hey, do you want to try some? And Jack tells the story that he said, I don't want anything to do with that stuff. He said, can't you see what it's doing to my dad? And his brother said, well, I'm, I'm going to try it. He said, why don't you try it? So his brother takes the lid off and takes a swig, and he said, oh, man, that is so sweet. That is so nice. Jack, you should try this. He said, I don't want any of it. His brother takes another mouthful and says, come on, Jack, just try it. Jack says he took a mouthful. And he said to him, it was anything but sweet. He said it was euphoric. He said something happened. The moment the alcohol left his mouth, went through his esophagus and hit his stomach, he said a warm glow came over him. And he said the fear And the insecurity that he felt at that point in his life and had experienced for so long in his life, suddenly with one mouthful of this substance, it all left him. He felt secure. He felt strong. He felt relaxed. He felt bold. His brother's saying, do you want another one? It's sweet. He said, I'll have another one, but it's not because it's sweet. He said, this stuff makes me feel good. And they shared the bottle and finished off what was left of it and passed out under the bed and went to sleep. The next morning, Jack went looking for more. He found his brother. He said, do you want some more of this? His brother said, no. He said, I got a headache from last night. He said, I I don't want any more of that stuff. He said, it's made me feel really sick this morning. And Jack tells the story. He said, at 12 years of age, at that point in his life, he found the most trusted friend he had ever known in his life. And that friend was called alcohol. He went on to be a rebellious teenager, drinking every day. He went on to hurt his own mother who had put up with so much from his father He fell foul of the law. He was in and out of children's detention centers. He was constantly brought home by the police. He was getting in fights at school, fights in the neighborhood. And eventually, when he was about 17 or 18, his mother asked him to leave. Jack looked at his mother and said, My dad has been coming home every night for years, has been beating you up, has been abusing you, has been abusing us, and you've never once asked him to leave. I'm, I'm your son, and you're, you're asking me to leave the house. And he says, his mother looked at him and said, Jack, you're not like your father. Your father has a problem with alcohol, and your father has a problem with anger. But Jack, you're different. Jack, he said, you're an animal. And he was driven out of his home and he was rejected and and a a wound went really deep into his soul and it drove him further into the alcoholic uh, addiction that he had and it drove him further into crimes. And as he got into his early 20s, he began to run with an organized crime syndicate in New York City. It was back in the late 40s, early 50s. And he began to deal drugs. He began to deal guns. He began to get involved with the Italian side of the New York mafia. And he became what he called a wheelman for the mob. He drove the getaway car and he was in and out of relationships. He was in and out of friendships. He would constantly find himself waking up in a gutter somewhere, having been beaten up. He would constantly get into brawls. And eventually, even the Italian mafia flicked him because of his drinking problem. In the journey of his, of his alcoholic experience in his mid-twenties, he decided because it was costing so much in relationships, in his health and, and so on, he needed to clean himself up and cut back on his drinking. 
And so he'd go a day or two and he would be okay, but eventually he would start to drink again and he would drink too much again. And, and within a day or so, it wouldn't even last a week, he'd be back, but this time it would be worse. And people began to get in his ear that was still in his life saying, Jack, you need help. You've got a problem. You've got a bondage. And, and, and Jack would say, I, I, I'm okay. I can get over this. It's just a bad season in my life. And, and uh, somebody eventually said to him, you need to go to AA. So he visited an AA meeting and he listened to the stories and he said, I am not as bad as these people. You know, I'm sure I've got a few problems and things have gone a bit pear-shaped in my life. But, but look, I, no, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I'm not a drunken inebriate like these people. I, I'm okay. I just need to cut back on my drinking and I need to just, just make a few more wiser choices. And so this pattern, this cycle went around and around in his life. And, and uh, eventually, by the time he was 28 years of age, he found himself on the Bowery, which is a suburb, a, a precinct, a section of New York City where the homeless and the addicted all go to sleep things off. It's a community. They live on the street. They're fed by charities that come around with food vans and so on. And, and he lived on the Bowery for two or three years. And it must have been when he was about 25, he lived on the Bowery for two or three years. And he said, one day... He found himself in a public toilet with his chin hooked on a filthy toilet bowl, vomiting blood. He said it was filthy. He's lying in excrement. He's vomiting blood. He's got sores all over his body and he's 28 years of age. He crawled out of that public toilet, out onto the footpath, and people are pushing him over to get out of my way, you bum. Get out of my way, you stink, and, and pushing him aside. And finally, he managed to stop somebody, and he, he called out. He said, would you please call AA? And he found himself back in an AA meeting. But he said these words. He said, it wasn't until I owned my problem that I was able to do something about it. And I, I want to say to you today, I've never forgotten that story. In fact, I've still got it on cassette tape. Young people know what a cassette tape is. It's a little plastic thing with a tape on the inside. You put it in a machine, push a button, and it plays music or whatever it is that's on the tape. We didn't have the MP3s, but it's still in a cassette tape. And I've never forgotten that story. And I thought, you know, that is the answer to overcoming any obstacle in our life. It's the answer to overcoming any kind of challenge, particularly overcoming a giant in our life that opposes us and resists us, we have to come to a place where we actually name the giant. We come to a place where we acknowledge who the giant is and what it is we need to do in order to take that giant down. And I, I want you to know today that, that David did that here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26. David asked the soldiers standing by, what will a man get for killing this Philistine. What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of the nation of Israel? Who is this Philistine pagan anyway that he dares to defy the armies of Israel? He's Goliath of Gath and David named that giant that was opposing them. What will a man get? David, I don't believe, was interested at that point in the king's daughter or being exempt from taxes. He was naming that sucker. He saw him defying the Israelite army and he said, what will a man get for getting this guy out of the way? He pointed at that guy. And I want to encourage you today that denial, 
of whatever giant is in your life will only allow that giant to get a stronger foothold and a greater grasp on your soul. We have to come to a place where we recognize this is what I struggle with. This is the enemy right now in front of me. And I'm going to name this thing and I'm going to take this thing down with a biblical process. James 5.16, we looked at this last Sunday. Confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess means to declare openly. Jack Brennan said, I am an alcoholic. I need help. He didn't say, I've got a, I've got a problem here with a few bad choices and so on. I just need to make a few wiser choices. I need to cut back on my drinking. I need to tidy myself up. No, he named it. And the moment he named it, his recovery process began to take place. Confess your sin. Openly declare. You know, that verse goes on. It says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We quote that scripture when we're sick. We quote that scripture when we need a breakthrough and we think, if I just get earnest, then I'll get my breakthrough. The context of that is talking about confessing your challenge, confessing your sin, confessing your your bondage, confessing your giant, naming your giant. And then when you name your giant to somebody on the horizontal, you don't have to tell everybody. But biblically, if you tell somebody that you trust, I have a problem with this, and you get that faithful prayer from that righteous brother or sister earnestly standing with you, it will bring great results. That's the promise. That's the context of the promise. You will overcome that giant. But the first step is you've got to name it. You've got to drop your pride and say, yes, I do have a problem with pornography. Yes, I do have a problem with overeating. Yes, I do have a problem with drug addiction. Yes, I do have a problem with, with whatever that thing is, fear, intimidation, a lack of trust, whatever it might I have a problem with this. I'm confessing that to you, my brother, because I'm a man and I wouldn't do it with a woman. But you're a woman, do it with a woman. I'm confessing this is my weakness. This is my giant. And I'm openly declaring this to you. This is my giant. I'm naming it right now. Will you pray for me? That's the earnest prayer that will produce wonderful results. It's in the context of that. Living in denial will only serve to empower your giant and prolong your blockage. Second thing we need to do to take down our giant, once we've named it, once we've acknowledged it, once we've seen it and called it for what it is, the second thing we need to do is discover your giant's weakness. What is your giant's Achilles heel? What is it that will bring down your giant? You see, Goliath's weakness was pride. And the only way to combat pride is with humility. And David says in verse 45 and 46 of 1 Samuel 17, he replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear and javelin, experience, skill, whatever it is. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. I come to you in the name of the God of heaven's armies, the God whom you have defied today. And he says this, today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you. You, you get that. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to conquer you. He said, I'll kill you when the Lord conquers you. So you see, there's a humility there. God, I can't do this without you. God, I need your presence in my life. God, I need your hand upon my life. I need your anointing because it's the anointing that breaks the yoke of bondage off our life. It's the anointing of the Spirit of God. God, we need you. And giant, when the Lord conquers you, I'm going to kill you. 
And the Lord conquered Goliath and then enabled David to take his life and remove his head from his shoulders. The only reason I will get to kill my giant is because the Lord will have conquered it. It's the the old understanding of enforcing the victory, not fighting for the victory. You see, the Lord has already obtained the victory. By faith, we enforce the victory. Fear's weakness is confrontation. If you struggle with fear and intimidation, fear's weakness is confrontation. It's calling the bluff. It's actually getting up back on your horse again and riding back into the same atmosphere, riding back into the same storm, riding back into the same challenge and eyeballing that thing with your eyes on Jesus over the top of its head. The only way to overcome fear and intimidation is by calling the bluff and getting back on your horse, whether it's a fear of failure, a fear of sickness and disease, a fear of bad news, a fear of calamity, a fear of things collapsing, a fear of financial ruin, ruin, whatever it is, rise up and move forward anyway. You know, I've said this numerous times before, when you're going through hell, keep going. Don't stop and pitch a tent. Don't live there. You say, but I don't know when it's going to end. Well, Stopping and pitching a tent, there's the end and it's going to be hell for the rest of your days. Keep going. Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, though I go through the valley, we will go through those valleys. He allows those things in our life to grow us, to grow our faith, to grow our trust, to grow our, our, our relationship, that we'll, we'll run to him, not from him, that we'll learn that he is our, our rock, he is our redeemer, he is our ever-present help. In time of trouble, I'll lift up my eyes and I'll look to the hills. From where does my help come from? It comes from God. That's where it comes from. It's getting back on your horse. The devil hates it when you get up after he's knocked you down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. That's the Achilles heel of fear and intimidation. What is your fear? What is your phobia? Rise up against it in the name of the Lord. From that posture of humility, the Lord will take you down and I will kill you. He will put you in a posture where I'm going to take your head from your shoulders. The weakness of sin and an unbreakable habit, I talked about this last week, is accountability. It's actually letting somebody know. You share, what they say a problem shared is a problem halved. Getting the right person alongside of you in life. The third step in overcoming, the first one, name your giant. Identify him. Call, it, call him for what he is. The, the, the second one, of course, is to find his Achilles heel, find his weakness, and begin to move towards that weakness, o- operate in the opposite spirit to the way your giant operates. But the third step, and I don't want you to miss this one today, the third step in overcoming the giant is to become acutely aware of his armor bearers. Become acutely aware. We think the armor bearer was just a little servant who probably died in battle because he was out front. He was carrying the bonnet for the shield for, I mean, you have to think about it. It probably was the size of a bonnet off a V-dub. It was just huge. The armor bearer, understand this. The armor bearer, when you read about them in Bible days, he finished off the victims of the warrior. The warrior would take down the victim, and if they didn't die, the warrior just kept going for the next enemy. He just kept going for the next victim. This guy's laying here bleeding. The armor bearer would go and finish him off. 
the armor bearer would go and put a sword through his neck or, or finish off the task that the warrior was too busy taking down other uh, foes in his path. The armor bearer would finish him off. When, you, you're, when you're in a vulnerable position, unable to fight back, you're crippled, you're bleeding, you're discouraged, whatever it might be, the armor bearer will come in with a fatal blow. And there are spiritual armor bearers in the church today. There are spiritual armor bearers opposing God's kids today and resisting God's kids from moving forward and taking the ground and the promises that Jesus said are ours. And I believe some of those armor bearers of today can actually be those closest to us. Unwittingly, people can so knock the wind out of, out of someone's sails with the words that are spoken, the things that are done. We can become the devil's mouthpiece without even knowing it. And I, I actually believe that Eliab, David's oldest brother, who was on Israel's side in Saul's army, actually became an armor bearer to Goliath and he was discouraging David. We read in, in verse 28, when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. Let me tell you something. When you rise up with a new level of faith and you start taking down giants and you start moving forward in God, there will be those around you who are lacking victory, those around you who are not moving forward, who will start to criticize you, even though God's doing something something great in your life because of either jealousy or envy. It's an armor bearer trying to discourage you from moving any further forward. It happens all the time in the house of God. We call it the tall poppy syndrome in Australia. Church leaders that are struggling, they're the underdog and everybody rallies around them. But the moment that church leader starts to get a breakthrough and starts to see growth and fruit and increase, everybody says, oh, there must be sin. He's doing something wrong because everyone else is struggling. He's getting break. And it's like, man, we build him up only to tear him down again. It's an armor bearer. It's the giant's armor bearer. And it can come from somebody very, very close to you. Somebody who lacks biblical understanding can just say the wrong thing. And we're going to learn to shake those things off of our life. We're going to learn to keep our eyes on Jesus and only listen to his voice, not the voice of those who are saying, oh, I don't think you should do that. Oh, I don't think you should, you know, you, you know, the point person, when someone's pressing weights on a weight bench, they're there to say, push, push. That's the kind of people you need around you. Come on, you can do one more. I haven't got one more. Come on, one more. You can get one more. Can you imagine? Saying, oh, I don't think you should do any more. Your veins are going to pop. I think you should stop there. It's like, oh, I think I've got two more. No, I wouldn't do two more. He's never going to push two more. I want people around me who are going to say, come on, push in, fight the fight of faith, overcome this thing. You can make it. God will give you the victory and you will kill that thing. We're going to listen to the voice of God. The next time somebody says to you, oh, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. The next time somebody says to you, you really haven't got the ability that you think you've got. You, you just go back to Psalm 139 verse 14. I will praise you because I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. And I have Jesus living inside of me and I can do anything because he's living inside of me. That's the voice of God we've got to listen to. Sure, I believe in wise counsel. Sometimes we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Sometimes we can be running ahead and godly counsel will help us put the brakes on. But more often than not, it's people just not wanting you to fly because they're not flying. Don't listen to the armor bearer. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are born for victory. We are born again for victory. We are born to overcome. We are born to rule and to reign. Don't let the enemy's armor bearers keep you at a lower level than you have been called to live at. You know, Jesus is all about achieving victory for us. You know, not only according to Psalm 37 are my steps being ordered by the Lord, but according to 2 Corinthians 2.14, He always leads me in triumph. Always leads us in triumph. Not, not sometimes, not occasionally, not if he's you know, too busy or he's got a little bit of time he can help you get through today. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. How does that tie together? When we walk in triumph, overcoming, there's a fragrance that we emanate and people say, I want what you've got. You smell good. When was the last time somebody said, you smell good today? I want the smile you've got. I want the joy you've got. I want the tenacity you've got. I, you know, you get knocked down so often. And sometimes I'm absolutely convinced God allows us to get knocked down and knocked down and knocked down. And we start navel gazing and we start going, oh, why isn't God helping me? Maybe God is just using you as a show pony to somebody else who needs to see when Jesus is in your life, you can actually get through. And if that's what he wants to do to me, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. If it's a matter of for the rest of my life, I've got to get knocked down to get back up again. Knocked down to get... So that others can say, oh, I, don't, I, I don't ever have to give up. I can keep getting up. I don't particularly want that calling, but um, if that's what he means. Philippians 4.13, I, I can do some things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, when the armor bearer gets in your ear... You know, you've been wounded by the warrior. The giant has hit you again and you're discouraged and you're despondent and you're going, I just can't go on anymore. I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. The armor bearer comes in in that moment of vulnerability and says, yeah, you need to give up. You need to quit. You need to walk away. You know, no, we've got to listen to the voice of Jesus, not the voice of the armor bearer. Say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've shared this before and it's just come to my mind now. I, I did a little bit of boxing when I was a teenager Never got into a fight with a professional bout. I didn't have a killer's instinct. I'd hit people and I'd apologize. It was stupid. You know, I'd be sparring and I'd get a good punch in and I could see it hurt the opponent. I'd go, oh, mate, I'm sorry. And while I'm apologizing, they'd clock me. You know, it's like I just didn't have the killer's instinct. But, but I, I remember one of my trainers said to me one day, he said, Marty, never, ever hit a man when he's down. He might get up. That's how I want the devil to see me. Don't, don't hit him when he's down. He, he always gets up. And when he gets up, he's angry. And it's a righteous anger. It's a righteous indignation that brings an anointing that I don't cope with. So if you've knocked him down, just leave him be. Don't, don't hit him when I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry out, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Don't give ear to your giant's armor bearer. Give ear to Jesus. He's the highest authority. His name will bring every opposing force to its knees. David came in the name of the Lord. I, I'm going to invite Arden to just come and join me for a couple of minutes on the platform. And I know we're, we've run out of time and this won't take very long. And so if we can have another stool up here, Ash, that would be great. 
You know, Arden shared an experience on Facebook. I think it was Saturday morning I saw it, Arden, and it was an experience that he had um, on Friday night. Well, it was probably the early hours of Saturday morning. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Ash. The early hours of Saturday morning, and I was so moved as I read it. And I thought, that's what it's all about. When we face our giants in the name of the Lord, not in our own strength, not with our own wisdom or might, but with the wisdom of heaven and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, giants will fall. And I've asked Arden just to share with you what happened to him. 2 a.m. Saturday morning. And just the experience of the name of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, and what took place while he's lying there in his bed. I trust you can. Some of you are on Facebook, and I guess you've read what I wrote. Uh, I could not have possibly written all that I went through and experienced. But uh, I, I've always been in the well since uh, you know many years in the Lord, uh, been aware of the presence of God and the nearness of the Lord, and I've also been aware of the fact that when we are asleep, our spirit doesn't go to sleep. And I've been aware of the fact that our spirit actually is alive and well in the spirit realm. And I've known that for many years. <clears throat> At 10 to 2 on Friday night, Friday, Saturday morning, I woke up. But I woke up to singing. And I think I said in the, on the Facebook, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Mm. But I... I became aware of the spirit realm and the singing was that uh, song that we've been singing here but the piece that was going over and over was what a beautiful name it is. And uh, I just lay there enjoying this uh, beautiful uh, song that was being sung. It was like as though I was singing it but it was too beautiful for me. Uh, <laughs> but I was, I was in, a, in the thing. And so there's what a beautiful name it is and a beautiful name it is. And I, I just was caught up in that tremendous presence of the Lord. And uh, as I gradually drifted back into the natural realm, as I become more and more aware of reality in the natural, uh, I became aware of the fact that uh, pain that I'd been experiencing for the last six weeks I lifted something that I should never have lifted on my own and uh, I ripped all the muscles in the top of my shoulders and I've had a lot of pain. And uh, I've tried all the tricks in the book and a little bit of relief or what do they call it, or six sore and sorry and all that stuff. And, but um, I became aware of the fact that I didn't have any pain in my body mm. and just the presence of the Lord. And... Uh, I found myself singing every conceivable chorus that would come to my mind about the name of Jesus. And I, I put in over an hour lying in bed just singing and enjoying the incredible presence of God. And uh, the whole theme that I felt the Lord saying to me was, you don't really know the power that's in the name mm. of Jesus. Mm. Yet so many people treat the name of Jesus as though it's like a lucky rabbit's foot. The name of Jesus is not a lucky rabbit's foot to pull out of your pocket when you're in a predicament. 
The name of Jesus is something that needs to be deep down in your spirit. It's the name of the King of Kings. It's the name of the Lord of Lords. It's the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And as we let that rise up out of our spirit, and that's what happened to me, up out of my spirit, I began to call on the name of the Lord. And that worship rose up in, in, in my spirit. And I know the victory that came into my physical body. I've not had any of this pain in my shoulders since for Saturday morning. Yeah, it just man. has gone. Mm. And uh, I, I'm just yeah, rejoicing in it. Yeah. You see... The Goliaths have to come down in the name of Jesus. Are we just saying the name of Jesus or is it something that comes up out of our spirit as a worship? See, Jesus said the Father is looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we need it needs to be something that rises up out of our spirit. And uh, I wonder, can I just have a bit of liberty? Please. Uh, I wonder, can we sing, stand and let's just sing... The chorus part of that, Joel, is that all right? What a beautiful name it is. And I want you to, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to make you aware. Mm. What a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name. What a powerful name the name of Jesus is. And let the anointing of the Spirit of God move upon you this morning as you sing. Let him set you free yes. from whatever it is that's uh, been Jesus. dogging your steps in some way Thank or the other. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, uh,